Welcome to the podcast at DC, hosted by The Lab at DC. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We use science to learn what works for Washingtonians. I'm your host, Sam Quinney, and today I'm joined on the podcast at DC by the podcast producer and our own operations analyst, Nellie Moore. Thanks, Sam. I'm really excited to be hosting with you today for a podcast discussing a topic that touches so many district residents' lives, housing in D.C. That's right. And we are very glad to have you on this side of the microphone today. The topic that we're discussing, like you mentioned, is really important. And as D.C. grows, the limited availability of affordable housing makes living in the district difficult or even impossible for many families. In response to residents' concerns over the stock and affordability of large units in the District of Columbia, the Office of the Deputy Mayor for Planning and Economic Development, or DEMPED, conducted the D.C. Housing Survey. They wanted to understand more about residents' experience with housing and moving in particular. What motivates households of all sizes to move or stay where they are, both now and in the future? And what do these reasons mean for the availability of family-sized units and more generally residential stability across D.C.? Today on the podcast at D.C., we'll be talking to Yari Greeny. Yari is a program analyst on the Economic Intelligence Team at the Office of the Deputy Mayor for Planning and Economic Development. She led the D.C. Housing Survey in partnership with the lab at D.C., and she manages interagency affordable housing data to improve the district's understanding of housing production and housing planning. Yari, welcome to the podcast at DC. Thanks so much for having me. Yari, you're an analyst on the economic intelligence team at DEMPED. What does DEMPED stand for? DEMPED is the Office of the Deputy Mayor for Planning and Economic Development. Under the mayor, there are several different deputy mayors. Each deputy mayor's office oversees a cluster of agencies. And so we oversee the agencies that have to do with economic development as well as affordable housing production. So it's no secret that we have a limited availability of affordable housing in D.C. And for many residents, that's made living and staying here difficult. Before we talk about this specific survey that we're going to discuss today, what do you think at a high level are the factors that contribute to that? That's a great question. So I like to think of it in terms of two separate sort of buckets, right? So first we have the supply and demand story, right? Right now, D.C. is a very hot housing market, right? People want to live here. We're increasingly seeing that people want to stay here. So there's a lot of demand. So we've seen that over the last decades, the number of households in D.C. has increased dramatically while the number of housing units, while it has increased, hasn't increased at the Mm -hmm. same rate. So we're seeing sort of this basic mismatch between the supply and demand, which means that housing prices are going to increase across the board, Mm -hmm. generally. Then we also have another problem, which is related, but that's more focused on the low-income residents within the district. And there we, especially in a place like D.C. where the cost of living is so high, these are the residents that are relying on critical programs for affordable housing production. So they're getting the subsidized affordable housing or are participating in one of the many programs that we have to support them. But we also see that for them, there is a shortage of units. So we see that 
Overall, there's a shortage on the market, and there's also a shortage of these subsidized units for low-income residents. And so while housing prices have continued to rise, not at the same pace as wages, we're also seeing that as one of the key factors. Those are sort of the two, is not enough subsidized housing and not enough housing overall. And how is that different across wards? And maybe for people who aren't familiar, what is a ward in D.C.? Sure. So the district is divided into eight wards. Each ward elects a council member. And so that's sort of a level of representation that people have across the district. And we do see a lot of demographic differences across wards, with some having higher average incomes. We see racial disparities across wards as well. So in some wards, we see a concentration of low-income folks who might be more in need of affordable units that are subsidized. But we also see that affordable housing opportunities are concentrated in some wards. So for instance, the Office of Planning has recently produced a map that shows that 1% of the district's affordable housing, that's subsidized housing that has an affordability covenant, which means that it can only be occupied by someone who is low income and is certified to live there. Only 1% of that affordable housing is in, for example, Ward 3. Whereas a high percentage of the affordable units exist in Ward 7 and Ward 8. And part of that has to do with where a lot of low-income residents have the need, and that's where they're looking for housing because that's where they live, that's their community. But it also has to do with other factors. For instance, the land value in wards 7 and 8 is lower than, for instance, the land value typically in ward 3. So affordable housing production can be more expensive in a place like ward 3. So we see both the difference in affordable housing production across the district, as well as where people currently live who need that subsidized affordable housing, but as well as limitation on where their opportunities are to live in the district based on that distribution of housing. Can you give us a little bit more context for people geographically where Ward 3 is relative to Ward 7 and 8? Yeah, Ward 3 includes Rock Creek Park. It's up in the upper northwest corner of the district. Ward 8 is entirely east of the Anacostia River. Ward 7 is almost entirely east of the Anacostia River. What are the key levers that we have as a district government for trying to address this affordability challenge, both in your office and also district-wide? I love this question. When I first started diving into affordable housing, when I joined the district government, I started to kind of realize, okay, well, we have the Housing Production Trust Fund, which is a fund that Mayor Muriel Bowser has funded at $100 million annually. And this allows us to construct affordable housing that's subsidized and, again, set aside for those low-income households. But it turns out that we also have many, many, many more tools that we use, often in conjunction with that Housing Production Trust Fund. So we have probably around 20 affordable housing tools that the district uses to support these low-income households. And those can take the form of housing vouchers where people pay 30% of their income on rent and then the voucher will take care of the rest. We have many ways that we produce affordable units and that includes inclusionary zoning, which means that when a developer produces any housing, 
if they're producing, I think, five or more units, then between eight to 10% of those units need to be affordable for people of a certain income level. So that's just one of the many tools that the district has to produce affordable housing. And so we're constantly trying to find new ways and tailor the ways that we currently have to make sure that we're really getting to those low-income households who have the need. And so it seemed like you gave examples actually on both sides of the supply and demand aspects of housing. So is it accurate to think of things like the Housing Production Trust Fund and inclusionary zoning and those sort of tools as increasing the supply of units in the district and affordable units in the district? Yes, absolutely. I like that framing too because Those tools specifically create those affordable units for low-income residents. But another thing that we need to be doing overall is just increasing the housing supply. So when we increase the affordable housing supply, we are also increasing the overall supply of housing. And when we look at supply and demand, if we increase housing supply, then hopefully the prices should start to stabilize. But the district does also have a goal that the mayor set in her second inaugural address in January 2019 to produce 36,000 net new housing units by 2025. And so the hope there and sort of the logic behind that goal is that by producing that amount of housing, we'll be able to help stabilize housing prices and prevent them from skyrocketing as demand continues to increase for housing in the district. So- You had the opportunity to lead the D.C. Housing Survey team, which we worked with, of course, collaboratively. Could you tell us what DEMPED, your office, was trying to learn from the survey and kind of the origin of it to begin with how you got started on this effort? Yes, absolutely. So the D.C. Housing Survey was actually my first project that I was assigned when I joined the district government. And a lot of the motivation came originally from the family-sized unit study legislation, right? So council mandated that my office, DEMPED, conduct a study to better understand the need for affordable family-sized units. And by that, we meant units with three or more bedrooms. Hmm. And so... It's a big problem. It's hard to figure out exactly what the housing stock looks like, not to even mention what the need for that housing stock looks like, especially in a dynamic situation where we have new people joining the district. We have people of different incomes. So it was a large endeavor. We worked with the Urban Institute and the Coalition for Nonprofit Housing and Economic Development, CNHED, to help work through some of the calculations using existing data sets, including census data and a wide variety of data sets that would help us understand, okay, how many low-income households, large households, or those with four or more people, are there in the district who are low income and need affordable housing. And on the other hand, how many large family-sized units are affordable to them. And so there were many different ways that they broke that down to be able to calculate that need. But we wanted to go beyond that and really understand what is going on in terms of what's driving the demand, right? Because household sizes is one way that people express demand in the housing market, right? If you have a larger household, maybe you will 
place demand in the market for a larger housing unit or one with more bedrooms. But what else is going on? Like, what do people prefer in their housing? What's driving people to move? And how are families, large and small, across income levels, across wards, how are they experiencing housing in the district? What's making them move to where they are? What's making them stay? And with that information in the context of the family-sized unit study, how can we then turn around and help stabilize low-income families in the district and families across the board to help them thrive in the district? So before we dive deeper into the DC Housing Survey and how you did that and what you found, what did you learn about family-sized units in the district? There are a lot of family-sized units. Again, that's units with three or more bedrooms. In fact, about one-third of the district's housing stock is composed of these units. And the majority of family-sized units in the district are single-family homes. So that can mean detached or attached homes, but single-family, so not looking at apartment buildings or things like that. A lot of them are also homeownership homes. So instead of being rental units, they're available for home ownership and owners live in them. So what that means is that, yes, we have a very large housing stock of family-sized units, but many of them are not accessible to low-income families, right? So we have around 30,000 large families, quote-unquote large. Again, that's households with four or more people. So we use this sort of metric as, okay, how many large families are there? How many family-sized units are there? There are way more family-sized units than there are large households. However, there are more large low-income households, that is the families, the low-income families, than there are family-sized units that are affordable to them. So we looked at the need in a few different ways because it can be a little murky to calculate what need really means, right? Do we think that need is only for people who don't have housing, so our affordable family-sized unit need is just the number of families who don't have housing at all? Or are there other metrics? And so we thought about different ways that people can experience or express housing need in our data. One thing that we looked at was underhousing, right? So you can imagine you have a large family, you're low income, you can't afford a house that's really big enough for you. So instead, maybe you rent a smaller unit. Maybe it only has one or two bedrooms when really you needed three or four. So that I consider need, right? Another way we can look at it is housing cost burden. And this was the main one that the Urban Institute and CNHED really dug into. So housing cost burden means that you are spending more than 30% of your monthly income on your housing costs. And that's defined by the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development. Mm -hmm. There are many debates on whether or not that's actually a good metric. And for low-income people, you might be very burdened if you're spending 30% of your income on housing. But we use that. We use that as the metric, right? And we found that the vast majority of low-income families or families who make less than 50% of the median family income are housing cost burdened. So these households... 80% of those large households, I think under 30% of the median family income were either housing cost burdened or severely housing cost burdened, which means they spent over half of their income on housing. Mm. 
So we're seeing this really significant need at the low income level. And that need is expressed not only through not having housing, but not having housing that is affordable to you and not having housing that is the right size for you. And so when we actually look at the numbers, we see that there are a little over 11,000 large low-income families. That is families of four or more who make 50% or less of the median family income. And of those, over 8,000 are housing cost burdened. And 3,000 of the overall pool of 11,000 are underhoused. They're not living in housing large enough. So if we pool those together, we find that altogether there are about 9,700 large low-income families in the district who do not have access to the family-sized units that they need that are affordable to them. And so that's the number that we came up with for this is the need, 9,700 family-sized units that are affordable to low-income families. And it sounds like then only 10% of low-income large families do have housing that is affordable to them. Yep, that's about right. And of course, at the individual household level, maybe you really do only need two bedrooms and that's fine. But we can say about 9,700 households are not appropriately housed. And all of that you got just from data that anybody could access, right? So the things that are public through census or other things that are open in the district. Is that right? That's correct. All public data. So since you answered those questions, like why go another step? Why survey? What was the goal there for DEMPED? Right. So when we're looking at this data, we're just looking at households, we're looking at their structure and the things that are available from the census. But we're not getting any sort of understanding of what their motivations are, what their internal feelings are, what their preferences and hopes were surrounding their housing. And so this, we feel, is a really important part of what makes someone stably housed in the district. So we wanted to understand what's going on with the many small households of just one or two people who choose to live in family-sized units. Maybe that's because there just are a lot of family-sized units in the district. If it's a third of the district's housing supply, then of course those small households are going to live there. Or is it because they want those units for one reason or another? And why do larger households live where they live? Do they prefer a smaller unit? Is that not really a big deal to them? Or are they looking for something else? So we wanted to start to understand these dynamics at a deeper level and really get more of the residents' input rather than just what we can tell from other research. And before you get to that, you really want to know what you're going to do with the answer. So what was DEMPED planning to do with the answer to these survey questions as you dug into why families were living where they are? So this was inherently part of the family-sized unit study, right? So it's meant as a supplement to that data to help Mm -hmm. us understand what's going on for large low-income families as compared to everyone else in the district. And what we want to be able to get to is a better understanding of how to make our housing programs most effective to help stabilize families, families of all sorts, across all income levels and across all wards. And if we can get a better understanding for what different family preferences and needs are, then we're going to be able to better target our programs and improve them over time. And then you pulled in the lab at DC to help support with the survey design and outreach. 
tell our listeners about how we work together. How did we decide on what questions to ask and how to word them? The process of developing the survey, there were many moving parts, right? So the first really was coming up with the why, and that included a lot of work in partnership with the lab of connecting with other agencies and understanding, okay, what do we know? What don't we know? And having conversations with them about what their research needs might be. I mean, if we're going to do this big survey, let's make it useful to people. We got so many different ideas. There are so many unanswered questions that agencies would love to have the answers to so that they can improve their programs. Yeah, I think I saw the first version of the survey and it might have been 25 pages long (laughs) after incorporating that feedback. I don't know if we would have gotten one person to complete a 25-page survey. (laughs) Yeah, it was a challenge because there were great ideas. Some people wanted to look at the intersection between health and housing. Some people wanted to do a deep dive on specific housing conditions. Some people wanted to explore the impact of very particular housing programs. I mentioned we have many in the district, so looking at the effectiveness of different tools or intervention points. We had just a great array of choices, but we really worked to ground it in the family-sized unit study and thinking about, okay, what's going on in the market, including in the affordable housing market for families of all different sizes. We wanted specifically to think again about, okay, what does need mean? So from the Urban Institute, we know they're working on housing cost burden. We know that they're working on underhousing, looking at those as expressions of need. There's another one that's been coined residential instability, and that's when people move frequently and often move frequently due to housing costs or other sort of unwanted push factors. There can also be pull factors, so people wanting to move to a more desirable location or housing unit. But we wanted to get a sense of how different demographics across the district are expressing housing need in their level of residential instability. And so that was one of the central themes that we really brought to the survey. Anyway, that was more about the why, but wanted to highlight that that interagency coordination really helped us hone in on what we were doing. And then from there, we launched into a fantastic design process with the lab We did a lot of sort of user process design, thinking about what will a resident think and feel from the moment they hear about the survey, right? So if they see it in their mail, they see it online, the first time they hear it from their friends, what is going to be their experience? And so, you know, we had all different kinds of envelopes laid across the table. How do we fold the letter to make it the most inviting? What's the very first line say? Things like that. We did some testing, too, and we brought in residents to help us think through this design process. We took it to the hackathon in last year's Innomation event, which happens every May. So we had a bunch of designers there, and they helped us think through, okay, well, here's what I would want to see. Here's what the follow-up would want to be. There were a lot of conversations about making people feel comfortable sharing information about themselves. Mm -hmm. So this survey was completely anonymous and confidential. 
but making sure people felt okay about sharing information and how to word the questions or the responses to make sure that people felt like I can give this data. And critically, something that people really talked about is wanting to be able to see the results. And people said, you know, even if it's a long time in the future, even if it's a year after the survey, knowing that there's going to be some way for me to figure out what's happened with this data is going to be really important. And so that's something that we've kind of continued to have in our mind. And I'm glad we have this opportunity to do the podcast too, because being able to communicate the results is a really important part of the full design of the survey. Obviously, we think that that's very cool, but that also sounds like a lot of work. Was it worth it for DEMPED in this process? I think it was worth it because we ended up getting actually a higher response rate than we expected. Hmm. By the survey deadline, we got about a 12% response rate. We had expected around 9 or 10 based on the literature review and talking with other agencies who had worked on surveys before. We think that there were a few things that had to do with that higher response rate, partly because we went through this design process. We workshopped through every question with residents at the DC Housing Expo last year. We had people come in and help us clarify what different things meant. So hopefully the process of taking the survey was an enjoyable one. And really, based on our literature review, we think that a key part of it was that housing is a really salient issue. Mm. People see housing in the mail and they want their voices heard. And that's what I think drove a lot of the responses was people really caring to be part of this conversation. And so we're grateful to all of the residents who responded and provided this information to us. So we designed the survey itself and some of the delivery mechanisms together. But what are some of the other things that we did to try and increase the response rate? So the lab helped design a sort of test to see how different incentives might increase the overall response rate. And some of the motivation there was thinking, okay, if other agencies want to do a survey in the future, or if we want to do a survey in the future, how can we efficiently get a higher response rate? And so for a subset of the people who we mailed out the survey to, we decided to do a pre-incentive, which meant that when we mailed the survey to them, we mailed them a $5 gift card right off the bat. So even if they'd never responded to the survey, they had that. And we found that indeed those people did respond at a higher rate. So we think that rather than trying to do an after incentive, which was more logistical work and adds the cost of an extra mailing, it was actually more efficient to do that pre-incentive. So that was helpful and sort of fun to see how we can kind of build that in future work. Yeah. And not necessarily intuitive for most people. I mean, maybe if we have survey methodologists listening, it'll seem obvious <laughs> to them that you do something like that. But the idea that you kind of give something without explicitly getting something is maybe not totally intuitive to people. Yeah, I was really surprised when the lab suggested that. But they showed me the research that suggested it would work, and it did. Yeah. So well done. Yeah. Based <laughs> in the research, but that's why we test things out and see how it works. So in the end, what did we end up getting from that 12%? Did we get a representative group of the district? Because that's really the concern. Like if we get 12% of people who are super angry about housing or super satisfied about their housing, then it's really not useful. Can you tell us a little bit about who we heard from in the end? Yeah, absolutely. So the research framework was designed to randomly sample at the ward level. 
And that was to keep in line with the analysis that the Urban Institute and CNHED were doing for us on the family-sized units, right? Because we were doing this ward-level analysis. And so we did actually get a fairly comparable, it wasn't exactly equal across all the wards, but it was a fairly comparable response rate across wards. And that was really the main goal and what the survey sampling framework was designed to do. I will say that most of the respondents were women, Hmm. Actually, overwhelmingly, I think around 60 or 70 percent of the respondents were women. You know, we asked questions about household size and things like that. So the idea was that it was sort of more of a household survey than an individual survey. So we didn't ask very many questions about the individual, but that was one. And I thought that that was interesting. Yeah, there's many different types of being representative. And a lot of times you're not going to get all of them and have to adjust that on the back end as much as you can. And which we did also. So at the time we were still contracted with the Urban Institute. And so they lent some of their statisticians to weight the data to make it more representative. And what does it mean to weight the data? What does that tell them about the final result? So the weighted data just enables the analysis to be more accurate. Even if we got most of our respondents from Ward 1 and hardly any from Ward 4, by weighting the data, it kind of equalizes it out so that in our analysis, we're not seeing those huge discrepancies. Yeah, and then thus only getting more opinions from people in Ward 4 relative to Ward 1 or any other part of the city. Exactly. It's correcting for that. Yeah, and you wouldn't throw out things to be more representative. Instead, you kind of boost up and adjust based on what's going to look like the district as a whole. Exactly. Let's turn to the results then. So now that we've talked a little bit about the design and the setup of it, so what's the biggest thing that Demp had learned from this about housing? Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, there were a couple of themes to the survey. One was looking at residential instability. How often are people moving and are they moving due to housing costs or other reasons? And then the other main theme was the overall drivers that were motivating people to move either the last time they moved and also the next time they're moving. So what are they thinking about before we even see it displayed on the market? What we found was that there is a significant amount of residential instability, about 17% were quote-unquote residentially unstable according to how we calculated it. There are many different ways to measure residential instability. For simplicity's sake, for our analysis, we said if you moved within the last five years due to housing cost reasons and you think you're going to move again in the next three years due to housing cost reasons, we're going to put you in this sort of residentially unstable category. And we see that residential instability varies across wards. So we have some people being more stable, being less likely to move for those reasons. The highest levels of residential instability were in Ward 7 and Ward 8, where we had higher concentrations of low-income residents as well. And so this is important because we need to understand that this is an expression of housing need. And when people are moving from place to place, they're still in housing, right? So there's that. But if they're moving constantly, that can have really negative impacts on individuals, on households. Some studies suggest it has negative impacts on childhood development and educational outcomes. So we see that across the district. We also see that households that had children were actually more likely to be residentially unstable. So Mm -hmm. a high portion of the district's residents, I think it was about 20% of the district's households with children, 
were moving frequently due to housing costs. Mm -hmm. And that can have a significant impact on those kids. And in an ideal scenario, that number would be zero, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning that everybody, when they're making a move, is not based on cost, but based on preference or family needs or things like that. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other things that people said were reasons for moving? So costs are really just one category of things that might motivate someone to move. But there are many others. The most common reason that people moved, and this was across income levels, across wards, was the desire for more space. Hmm. And that was a motivator for many people's previous move as well as their future move. Right. So when people are thinking, okay, if I move in three years, one of my main drivers for moving is going to be the desire to have more space. Mm -hmm. And this was a really key finding for us because we saw this across household size, hmm. right? We saw that many small households, that is households with one or two people, had moved to their current location in order to get more space. Many are also planning to move and their reason for moving is for more space. So when we contextualize this in the family-sized unit study and think about, okay, well, we need more family-sized units that are large and have space for families, we have to remember that there are also small households who also place demand on that space, mm -hmm. right? So just because you build a new family-sized unit doesn't mean that's going to be occupied by a larger household unless it's an affordable unit that is specifically set aside for a large low-income family. So that was an important finding for us in thinking through what's motivating people to occupy different places. We saw that for larger families, including families with children, a key motivator for a future move was safety and proximity to schools. So we see there that it's more than just the housing, right? And when we think about the reasons people move, it's really important to remember that it's not just the housing itself, but we're really thinking about how can we build communities that are really encouraging to stabilize people rather than pushing them on constantly. Another finding was that about one-fifth of the population from both Ward 7 and Ward 8 believe that they're going to have to move in the near future in about three years due to inability to pay a bank or landlord. And so moving in response to a request from a bank or landlord, and that can have implications for residential instability as well. So those were some of the key findings about why people move. And you've already touched on this the families with children are more likely to be residentially unstable. But were there other groups who were more likely to move due to housing costs? Yes. I mentioned that households that live in Ward 7 and 8 were the most likely to be residentially unstable, also the lower income groups, right? So households that make less than 30% of the median family income were the most likely, those making a little bit more than that. We're also likely, but we see in the higher income levels, people were very unlikely to be residentially unstable, right? And that partly had to do with how we defined residential instability, just because we said, okay, if you're moving due to housing costs. But I think it's important to remember, like, housing costs are something that people in the district struggle with across all income levels, right? We know this. But there's different levels of struggle, and there are different levels of need. So yes, someone who is making about the average might 
be spending more on their housing than they want to. They might even be spending a little more than 30% of their income on housing. They might be a little bit housing cost burdened, but we're not seeing them move frequently due to housing costs. We're not seeing them be pushed from their home to another place time and time again. And so this is a really important way to sort of draw a distinction between those different types of need. And you can imagine if you ask anyone, you know, is your rent too high or is your mortgage too high? <laughs> More people are going to say yes than no, regardless of where you are. But the important part of that is, is, does that change your life in some way? And it sounds like for our lower income families, it really is for a large proportion of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also collected data on the race of the respondent, right? So we didn't get the race of the full household, but we were able to do some analysis there. And we did see that black families and non-white families overall were more likely to be residentially unstable. And that does track demographically across the wealth gap and the racial divide. You already mentioned the higher percentage of female respondents. Is there anything else about the survey that surprised you? You know, you probably have some ideas. I mean, we started out saying, obviously, that many people understand that affordability is a challenge in the district. You might not need a survey for that. And obviously, we're talking more about the reasons for why and how people are experiencing housing. But is there something that you really wouldn't have known from the beginning that really made you think about housing a little bit differently in the district? Yeah, there are a few things. One of them certainly had to do with small households' preference for more space. Mm. So a lot of times we talk about, okay, well, we need to increase housing production, so that means we need to increase housing density, and people immediately think, okay, small, little units, Mm -hmm. right? And we think maybe some of those small households will want to move into a small unit, but we see from the survey data they're really looking for more space, right? And that can be because they want to stay and grow a family. There are many reasons that people could want more space, right? So it really has me thinking about how can we produce a lot more housing, including a lot more affordable housing that still enables people to have space, right? And so sometimes that will mean more bedrooms for larger households, Maybe more space can take a variety of methods, right? Maybe we can see a shared backyard or more open space. Can we have, you know, shared courtyards? What are different mechanisms that we can use to create the space that people seek while enabling greater density? And so those are some of the ideas that are starting to percolate as we understand that that is a really key preference in the housing market. Yeah, and I think that's an important point because when your goal is units and if the goal is 36,000 units and 12,000 affordable units, well, if you're just going for units, then let's build a whole bunch of studio apartments that are 400 square feet. But that's obviously not going to fit the need. So I think that's an important takeaway. Mm -hmm. Right. And if people are looking for more space, but other things might fulfill that need, right? Like amenities in their neighborhood, in addition to shared space in their building. So restaurants, parks, a shared community space, just focusing on building more units could also displace other development that could help to meet that need. Right. And so thinking about the community as a whole and what are we building to really stabilize people? Another thing that surprised me a little bit in the data, we were thinking when we started, maybe we will see signs of unwanted moves, right? We talk a lot about, you know, what's happening with displacement in the district, right? We know that many black households have left the district in the last decade. 
And so we were looking to see if we could see that in the data. What we found was that people who were thinking that they were going to move in the near future, and whether that was for housing cost reasons or to get better housing conditions or whatever the reason was, most of them also wanted to move. They didn't necessarily want to move to a different location outside of the district, but people wanted better housing, right? They didn't want to just stay exactly where they were with no sorts of changes, right? That's not the narrative that comes through. People do want to see this change in their housing circumstances and their neighborhood circumstances, right? They want to move for more safety. They want to move for better housing conditions. They want to move for lower housing costs. So there is this desire for change, and maybe that comes with sort of shifting the way that housing looks right now for those people to accommodate their needs and preferences. And maybe it looks like giving them more mobility options, right? And again, going back to the family-sized unit study, right now, the housing options that are available for large low-income families are really constrained geographically, right? There aren't that many options for them west of the Anacostia River. So as we think about this, it's important to realize, okay, when people are saying they don't want to leave, that doesn't mean they don't want things to change, right? They do want to see improvements in their housing and neighborhood. And I guess that was less surprising and more an important reminder that that's what people are looking for in their housing. So this isn't the first time we've talked about housing on the podcast at DC, and it will definitely not be the last time, I can assure you. But one of our previous guests on the podcast at DC was Yeshem Sayan Taylor from the DC Policy Center. She was talking about her report called Taking Stock of the District's Housing Stock, and a quote really stuck with us. And that was the quote that says, the following is a point often made but worth repeating. High and low income residents in the city live far away from each other. How does that finding from that report and that reality in the district relate to what you found in the survey and also how DEMPED and the district as a whole are thinking about how we plan housing in the community? Great question. So in the housing survey, the first sort of warm-up questions for the survey had to do with how satisfied you are with your housing in your neighborhood on a scale of 1 to 10, right? So they answer those easier questions about just how they feel about their housing situation and their neighborhood as a place to live. And we saw really significant differences between wards. And people who are in the higher income wards, looking at ward two, ward three, had higher satisfaction with both housing and neighborhoods. Those in lower income wards, including ward seven, ward eight, had lower satisfaction with their current housing and their current neighborhoods. So we do see this discrepancy. And this kind of goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast, where we're thinking about where these affordable housing resources currently exist and why they exist where they do and why Ward 3 only has 1% of the district's affordable housing, whereas you know Ward 8 has over 30% of the district's affordable housing and why these discrepancies exist and what impact that has on people. So if we think that by mixing these communities, resources would be shared more equally, then you can do that two ways. You can either bring more higher income people into lower income neighborhoods, or you can bring more lower income people into higher income neighborhoods. And one direction of that is way easier than the other. 
right? It's much easier. And in fact, a lot of the way we produce affordable housing is by building mixed income buildings, right? And mixed income communities can have a lot of really positive benefits for people. Like being around people who are different from you can be really helpful and opening your mind and in some cases can improve community cohesion. But when we build these mixed income opportunities in low income areas, we're doing two things. We are increasing the affordable housing supply and thereby inherently making D.C. an easier place for low-income people to live. And we are increasing the housing supply for people who are of higher income levels. And we're putting them in places where low-income people live, right? And so that can have some positive impacts. And sometimes it might change the community for better or for worse or in ways that some of the existing residents like and some that they might not. So that's sort of one way to do it. It's cheaper to do it that way because then we're bringing in the revenue from those higher income units and that allows us to pay for the affordable units. So that's kind of the key to a lot of affordable housing production. If we go the other way and we look to bring affordable units into these higher cost areas, then what that means is that the acquisition costs of the land might be more expensive. If the rent is already higher there, then the cost of subsidizing the rent for low-income residents is going to be higher, right? So it's a more expensive endeavor. But if we only go one way, what does that mean for the district overall? So I think it's an important thing to realize that Yes, there is a high level of segregation still in the district, but there are two different ways to address that problem. So you mentioned earlier that the mayor has set a goal to build 36,000 units. How are we going to do that? Will these survey findings influence the way that we do that at all? So understanding the housing stock, understanding the need for family-sized units, and understanding what people are looking for in the housing, what's motivating them to move or stay or want to stay, is really important for figuring out and planning the future of housing in the district. So right now, the Office of Planning, the Department of Housing and Community Development, DEMPED, and sister agencies are working together on the housing framework for equity and growth. And that is sort of an overarching project that's going to help us figure out, okay, where should these 36,000 units go? And housing unit development in one neighborhood might look very different than in another neighborhood, right? There are a wide variety of tools, a wide variety of housing forms that we can use across the district. So the Office of Planning is conducting outreach to work with communities to help us sort of understand where should these housing units go. Of these 36,000 at least 12,000 are going to be affordable units, right? So how do we get there? That's sort of the question that we continue to wrestle with. And that's why we continue to see an expansion of affordable housing tools and funding, which is going to be crucial for achieving those goals. When we look specifically at family-sized units, and again, going back to that desire for more space that so many people expressed in the housing survey, we can look at where can we have more multifamily developments that include family-sized units. Right now, it's a really key challenge. Like The reason that we don't have many affordable family-sized units is that per square foot, the rent on a family-sized unit 
is much less than on a smaller unit, right? So naturally, developers are not incentivized to create family-sized units in these multifamily developments. So as we work to increase our density and create more housing for the many people who want to live and stay in the district, we need to figure out, okay, how can we make sure that we're incorporating housing into this density that is really going to be appropriate for families? So thinking about a variety of tools, what subsidies, what zoning changes might be needed in order to be able to achieve these goals. And it's going to look different across the district. But that's sort of the massive planning project that's happening right now. Great. And the lab and DEMPED didn't just work together on this housing survey and then walk away from each other, (laughs) right? As Sam said, we're not just going to do one podcast on housing for an issue that's so important to the lives of district residents. We're also not just going to do one project on housing. So we have a current partnership. Could you tell us about that project? Yes, the front door project. (laughs) So As I mentioned, there are many, many affordable housing tools in the district. There are also some 37 programs that are available to help homeowners and prospective homeowners in the district. But as you could imagine, navigating that sea of programs and offerings of assistance can be a bit daunting, perhaps. So the lab is working with all of these agencies, including DEMPED, to create a more unified platform that's very user-friendly, that will help people who are trying to navigate all of these homeowner programs to be able to align the programs and access them more easily and really be able to take full advantage of the assistance that the district offers. Yeah, we're very excited to have DEMPED's expertise in that because the lab, while we know a lot about research and science, we are not housing experts. So as we sort of dive into that, it's always great to have your brains working with us on it. Well, we're happy to be working with the lab again. (laughs) And if listeners want to learn more about that project and other ones, they should go to thelab.dc.gov and click on what we're working on, where you can visit the lab's new project pages that discuss Front Door, discuss Formapalooza, which is the umbrella project for Front Door and all of our user experience projects, and many of the other things that we're doing in housing and across other policy areas. And if our listeners want to learn more about what you found in the DC Housing Survey, where could they go? People can go to the DEMPED webpage, demped.dc.gov, and there you'll be able to find a page on the family-sized unit study. And that has links to the full report, as well as a dashboard that enables residents to really explore the findings of the report in a more interactive and engaging way. So I hope people enjoy exploring the results of the survey there. I would also direct people's attention to a newly released blog from DEMPED. That's the DC Housing Data Blog. And there we explore not only housing issues and housing policies, but all of the different data in the district that relates to housing. So eventually we might branch into jobs and economic development incentives. Right now we have a blog post up on the family sized unit study. If you don't want to read the full 80 page report, you can just go to our short blog post, which summarizes some of those key points. And you can find that housing blog at dchousingdatablog.com. And the overall website is dmped.dc.gov. Do I have that right? Yes, that's right. That's where you can find the links to the family size unit study and the report as well. Great. 
Well, Yari Greeny, thanks for being on the podcast at DC. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the podcast at DC, a production of The Lab at DC. Our producer is Nellie Moore, and our podcast intern is Tim Madden. We want to know what you think of the podcast at DC, and we want to hear your ideas for what topics we should be covering. Go to tinyurl.com slash the podcast at DC to take part in our listener survey. The link is also in the description of this episode. Your feedback will help us improve our content and production quality, and it'll also allow us to better serve district residents and improve evidence-based governance in DC. If you liked what you heard, visit our website at thelab.dc.gov, where you can sign up for our mailing list. You should also follow us on Twitter at thelab underscore DC. However you choose to connect with us, you can find more information on our work and stay updated on what we're doing. For more episodes of the podcast at DC, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sam Quinney.